You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. At the end of the day, you know, we should all be about change. We should all be about racial justice, social justice, change, systems change, structural change, so that we can address these inequities that are so pervasive and really achieve, you know, the kind of outcomes we want, which is everyone healthy and thriving and, you know, successful, really. And you can't do that by being in denial about racism. You can't do that by being in denial about structural inequities. You can't do that by being in denial of what 400 years of, you know, institutionalized racism that this country was built upon, uh, not recognizing that that actually has implications for people's lives today. That was Chris Putnam Walkerly author of Delusional Altruism, Why Philanthropists Fail to Achieve Change and What They Can Do to Transform Giving. In this rich conversation, we discuss the barriers philanthropists face in making change happen and some ways to overcome them. Importantly, we lead the conversation with whether the word philanthropy, with its legacy and how it's used, is actually a barrier for social funders and investors to get involved in the first place. Since you're already a change maker, I hope this conversation opens up space for you to explore how you can make a bigger difference by being a social funder and investor, also known as a philanthropist. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Chris, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really excited about this conversation because we are in this moment in society when we're looking at, you know, COVID and and things opening back up, but us also remembering how much of our social sector and our civic sector um, needs to be revitalized. Um, And then we're going into, you know, we're on the back of a year of um, social uprising. We're going into the summer, so we should expect more of it. So I think it's a time where a lot of our listeners are going to be thinking, how can I get involved in making the world a better place? And conversations around philanthropy are really a good a good place to start. So thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Alrighty, I'm going to start with um, a little bit of background here. How did you get started in doing the work that you're doing, and how, sort of show us the trajectory from the beginning to where you are today? <laughs> well, the work I do now is advising philanthropists of all kinds and types, so high net worth donors and leaders of foundations and corporate giving programs. A lot of that is serving as a trusted advisor and also as a strategist helping with strategic planning. And I got started really, uh, I decided to get a master's in social work um, and thought I was gonna run nonprofit social service agencies. But I took some classes in evaluation and learned that I was really intrigued by the whole idea of um, assessing impact and understanding what's working, what's not working and making change. So I went to work at Stanford University, and I was an evaluator of youth and gang violence prevention programs throughout California. And this was an initiative funded entirely by the California Wellness Foundation, um, which at the time was really kind of shifting people's thinking about youth violence from being a criminal justice problem to a uh, public health problem and really thinking about prevention. And I thought, you know, if you're if you're a funder, if nothing else, you have money. 
but that doesn't necessarily mean you'll be effective. And so, but if you bring the right people to the table, if you bring in the right expertise, if you listen to the people who are being impacted by these issues and you create, you know, appropriate strategies and interventions, you really can create a lot of positive change. And so I thought, I think I'd like to go work for a foundation. So I went to work at the David and Lucille Packard Foundation, which is the family foundation of Dave Packard of HP. And it was the largest, I think, in the country at the time. And, you know, learned that I liked philanthropy. I liked the work, began consulting on the side uh, for Charles Schwab's family foundation, learned that I liked consulting and decided what the heck I'll just start a business. And it's been over 20 years. I love that journey because um, it just reminds us all to give ourselves permission for our careers to take unexpected turns Mm -hmm. and just to pay attention to what's lighting us up and what we're liking. And just, I didn't know what consulting was. Turns out I like it. Exactly. (laughs) I'll do more of that, you know? Or I didn't know what philanthropy was. Turns out I like it. So, you know, you never know. And we need to be open to these opportunities for sure. So I like the way you set that context because you have a master's in social work and you didn't know what philanthropy was when you started. (laughs) And this has been a part of a, a, you know, itch I've been scratching at for the last couple of years about this term philanthropy and the philanthropic sector and things like that. So in your um, understanding, what is philanthropy? Yeah, philanthropy is one of those words that I think sounds very highfalutin. You know, we picture, you know, the billionaires of the world on their yachts, uh, giving money away and going to galas and whatnot. But I I think really, we're all philanthropists. I mean, philanthropist really is about, um, you know, actively promoting human welfare and, you know, generosity and caring for others. And there's lots of ways that we can do that. We think about giving money, which of course is important and a, a big part of philanthropy. But I really believe that we all can and should be giving of our full selves to help, you know, communities, to help our neighbors, to help, you know, the greater good. And so by that, I mean, not just your, your resources, but your knowledge, your insights, um, making your connections, your contacts, making introductions for people. I mean, I think, you know, looking at COVID and nonprofits that were responding immediately to the crisis and the pandemic and the opportunities for federal loans, you know, a lot of nonprofits were scrambling to figure out, like, how do I do this? Is this a good idea? And most nonprofits, you know, while they have a bank account, they don't necessarily have a banker. You know, there's not a human being to call. And so the simple act of a donor introducing a nonprofit grantee to their banker for a conversation would be hugely important to that nonprofit so that they're not talking to an 800 number or like looking at the, you know, federal government website, but they're actually getting real information. And so I think it's sometimes it's little things like that but really thinking about how can we be generous and how can we give um, to me means that, you know, the vast majority of us really are philanthropists. I totally get that. Um, And I said, you know, this has been scratching an itch that I've been having for the last few years because I have been concerned about the sort of perennial and ubiquitous question that we have in the nonprofit sector about equity and who's on boards, who's actually employed by nonprofits, who's not employed by nonprofits, right? And this sort of problem that we have where we have, and I'll just call it like it is, we have largely white boards and white staff serving largely non-white communities. 
Yes. Um, and so, you know, as I've been talking across the country and with different colleagues, I've been like, hmm, there are a lot of problems going on here, right? Yes. Whenever we see that system and something that I've been thinking a lot about recently is whether the very word philanthropy is problematic mm-hmm. and whether it's closer to a word like plantation. There's a mm-hmm. strict definition of plantation that does not mean what it emotionally means. Mm-hmm. But the cultural history of that word mm-hmm. is such that we would be fools to think that we can name something a plantation mm-hmm. and then wonder why, you know, people of color and black people don't show up and participate. Mm-hmm. And so I'm starting to wonder to what degree philanthropy and being a philanthropist is like that mm-hmm. in the sense that we have entire swaths of community of colors. It's like, I'm not a philanthropist because of X, because I'm not mm-hmm. those folks, but mm-hmm. also because of this legacy of what that means. I'm just curious what you think about that. Yeah, that's a really great question and observation. I think a few different things. One is, I mean, it's a very fair question, and I would be curious to see to what extent, um, if you tested that, that is actually accurate. If there's a really, if there is a negative response among uh, communities of color, people of color, to the word philanthropy. And by all means, why not change it? I mean, why not come up with different uh, words and discourse? Um, because at the end of the day, you know, we should all be about change. We should all be about racial justice, social justice, change, systematic systems change, structural change, so that we can address these inequities that are so pervasive and really achieve, you know, the kind of outcomes we want, which is everyone healthy and thriving and, you know, successful, really. And you can't do that by being in denial about racism. You can't do that by being in denial about structural inequities. You can't do that by being in denial of what 400 years of, you know, institutionalized racism that this country was built upon, uh, not recognizing that that actually has implications for people's lives today in very real way, like quantifiable ways. And so, so the questions you're asking, I think, are super important. I do believe, and I'm happy that philanthropy is, as a whole, as a field, meaning like leaders of foundations, of corporate giving programs, uh, and a lot of the associations that help them have been, I think, genuinely seeking to um, have their own reckoning around racial justice and racial equity or inequities um, or equity, and uh, really not... It started with, not surprisingly, a lot of funders believing this is important and kind of talking about it, but not doing much. And then it continued with trying to push it back on the nonprofits to deal with, right? Asking the nonprofit leaders, well, how diverse is your board? You know, without saying, well, how diverse is our board? Or expecting to kind of solve the problem by giving a grant, Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think what's changed, uh, over the year past mm, six, seven, eight years has been a really, a, a, a willingness and recognition of the need for donors, foundation leaders to apply that racial equity lens on themselves and really take a hard look at how they, how we, uh, perpetuate these problems and these injustices and what we need to do to change. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I was worried that was more of a fad and a trend, but I do believe it's it's has more legs. It's more lasting. Um, but even still, that shows a power dynamic, right? It's a funder's choice to do that or not do that. And that's a problem. Yeah, that's a problem. And, you know, what I've been thinking about is to what degree in the philanthropic in the philanthropic sector, we switch the question from optionality that we can choose 
to do this. It's a good thing to do versus a matter of justice and rightness in this. And I know that's the mm-hmm. philosopher and Charlie coming at like, mm-hmm. as it's actually your obligation to do so. And I know that can go into twisty turns. You know, we start talking reparations, we start talking things like that, that make people super uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But you know, what we look at is in our attention economy that we're in. Um, if we can opt out of hard things, a lot of us choose to. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's where we start thinking about as we get involved in the nonprofit sector and as we think about ourselves as philanthropic as philanthropist is how do we not opt out of the hard questions? How do we not opt out of the hard things? Because if we're really about solving hard problems. Mm-hmm. There are some that we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. And I think what funders we all really we all need to do is put ourselves in uncomfortable positions. Um, in fact, you, you referenced and I mentioned uh, my social work grad school experience. That's one of my key lessons that I learned is like the importance of being uncomfortable and, and uh, uh, that we should always be in that kind of situation. We should be talking about reparations. I mean, I was uh, speaking with uh, was invited to speak by a bank um, and we were talking about really quite frankly, they were kind of willing to, willing to talk about racial equity. But when reparations was mentioned as a possible topic, they were like, oh, no, you know, we can't tackle that. And I said, well, actually, it's being tackled already. You know, there's cities, there's states, there's counties that are discussing reparations, there's banks, you know, there are a lot of organizations that are already like, over it, you know, like not over it, but like, you know, they're dealing with it. And he and the, he was like, oh, <laughs> you know, like he didn't realize that it actually is a topic of conversation that should be a topic of conversation. And, and so I think we need to, you know, we need to push ourselves. And I, I think that is a role that nonprofits can and should be playing to push funders, but funders need to push themselves and really challenge themselves as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, I'll, you can tell that I'm revealing a lot of conversations I've had either with, with organizations that I advise or that I'm a part of. And at a certain point when we start talking about, you know, a more diverse staff and more diverse boards looking at folks and saying like, how many friends do you have that are from the communities that we're trying to pull on? Because if we're looking at our board members and saying, you need to recruit, but we also need diverse callers. And they're like, I don't have any, I don't have any friends that are coming from the communities we're trying to recruit. And I don't have people that are, you know, of alternate, you know, sexual identities and things like that. Then it's like, well, let's talk about that then, right? Um, because otherwise we end up in the same model to where we recruit people to recruit more people like them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that puts a lot of this mm-hmm. structural change work on the people we recruit when we mm-hmm. need to be thinking about distributing that. So I wanted to take us down that because I know for so many of our readers and listeners who are starting to think about this, they're starting to see some of these patterns like, oh, what do I do about that? Right? How do I get there? And that sort of ties into one of the major mistakes you talk about in your book that philanthropists make, which is, you know, being too overwhelmed um, by everything that's going on. And I think part of the part of the challenge that I've seen so many of our audience be is first, I don't know if I count as a philanthropist or a donor, I'm not in the position to be able to do that. I know you address some of that. And then it's okay, but all the problems, what do we do about that? Where do I start? So how do you help people with the how do I get started when there's a world full of problems and I don't know which one which one to tackle? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I believe that feeling overwhelmed is such a barrier to, to funders that I devoted a whole chapter on it in my book, Delusional Altruism, um, which is really all about how I believe you know funders and philanthropists genuinely want to make a difference, change the world, do the right thing, but are getting in their own way. 
and being kind of paralyzed in overwhelm is one of those ways that they get in their own way. And yeah, it's daunting because, you know, um, you know, let's say you have $50 million to give away, which is a lot of money. And that you might think like, woohoo, that, that, that's great. I want to make a difference. But, you know, gosh, then you, want, you actually think about, well, what are the causes that are meaningful to me? Climate change, ending domestic violence, you know, whatever. Then you realize there's a lot of issues to tackle. And if you be, then try to involve your family or your employees or, you know, somebody else, then that, you know, it complicates the issue. To me, it comes down to a couple of things. One is um, really starting with the right questions. And those questions start with why, you know, kind of why do I exist as a funder, as a donor, as a person who wants to, to make a difference in the world? Um, what's my purpose in that? And then asking what, and really this ultimately comes down to strategy. So meaning like what kind of impact do I want to have in the world? What kind of change do I want to see in my community in the next year or so? What kind of philanthropic family or funder do I want to be? Uh, and this applies, you know, to nonprofits as equally, you know, what kind of impact do we want to be having? And then taking a good hard look at where are we today? Like given that, given the changes we want to see in a year, or who we want to be a year from now, where are we today? And just being honest about that. And so to your point, you know, maybe um, the change you want to see is uh, reducing inequities in access to healthcare in your community. And where you are today is, I don't know, you've never thought about it before, but now you've, you realize it. like COVID helped open your eyes. You realize this is an issue. You don't know much about it. And by the way, you're white, your board is white, you know, everyone's white. And you, you, you have not had conversations about race. <laughs> like, okay, like that's where you're at. Like, that's okay. Start with where you're at. So what are the most important things you need to focus on? The two, three, four most important things you need to do next to move you from where you are today to where you want to be. And then assign people to be accountable to those and make them happen. And so, you know, that could be anything. That could be reading the book, White Fragility, and discussing it, right? That could be learning and identifying some organizations, like understanding the issue of um, inequitable access to healthcare in your community and informing yourselves. Um, but to your point, like you, some of these changes, they'll take a little bit of time. You know, you can't just like find your black friend and put them on your board of directors. Like that is not helpful, right? Because if you as an organization are not ready to have these kinds of conversations, you're not certainly making a comfortable place for that uh, black leader to be part of your solution. Right. And so, you know, some, you need to do the hard work of making some of these changes, but get clarity again, and what you're trying to do, where you are and what are those things you need to focus on so that you begin to gain momentum and you might learn, wow, we really like, you know, tackling these issues or, gosh, maybe it isn't just healthcare, but it's health, it's mental healthcare. Like you might actually learn you want to dive deep, whatever it is, right? That's okay. Because you can make course corrections along the way. And um, one of the challenges I think a lot of funders have right now in this past year has been, and all of us, that the world keeps changing. Like conditions all around us keep changing. You know, you wake up every morning, there's a new crisis to tackle and it can feel hard to plan ahead and it can feel hard to pick something and focus on it because you think, well, what's the point? It's all going to change next month anyway. And so um, to that point, I, I wrote a free guide. I'd love to share a resource. I'd love to share with your listeners. Um, it's called eight things every philanthropist can do to change the world, even when the world keeps changing. And it's really eight, eight steps you can take to plan ahead, 
even when conditions all around you keep changing. And it's equally useful, I think, for nonprofit leaders as, as funders, at, you know, as business owners, because the future is always uncertain. And it's no more uncertain today than it was last decade or last century. And we need to recognize that, you know, th- it, things are always going to be volatile. There is no new normal coming down the pike, right? And But we can't just sit here in paralysis. We'll get nothing done. So we need to create a plan, create a strategy, a giving plan, whatever, and begin moving on it with the confidence we can change course along the way. So um, if you want to download it, it's a free guide. You can just go to eightthings.org and enter your email and it's a free PDF. I think it'll be really useful. Again, that's eightthings.org. Because, you know, I think we really have to build upon the agility muscles we've all developed in the past year and um, recognize that, you know, things are going to change and we have the confidence we can change along with it. But then we always have a clear framework to guide our decisions day to day. And we don't get, you know, kind of taken off course chasing shiny squirrels. I love that. And we'll link this in the show notes, but um, just in case someone's listening right now and they want to look, is that the number eight or the word eight? It's actually both. Okay. So either domain, I bought both of them. Uh, so eight, the number eight or eight, the word eight, eightthings.org. That, that's super smart, Chris. So everyone else take note, one, download it, but two, if you ever have a name like that, get both URLs if you can. Exactly. Um, well, um, as I mentioned earlier, Chris, um, I'm actually talking to Paul Shoemaker, who wrote the book, Taking Charge of Change. Um, and I'm having a conversation later with him today. And um, one of the things that, that popped out for me that's a real good bridge between your two books is he talks about rebuilders needing to have the trait of, a, um, of complexity capacity, Right. Of just being able to look at complex problems and able to parse that. And where that was popping up for me is I think that one of the barriers that a lot of philanthropists have that want to get started is um, a lot of the hard problems that we're really going after are going to be ones that take a long time and they're going to be systems change efforts. So your money in that moment, your time in that moment, your connection in that moment may not bear fruit for three to five years or a couple decades. So how do you work with people who um, want to make an urgent change now, but the change that they want to make is going to take years and decades to play through and just have the patience to be able to see that through? Mm-hmm. So that's a great question. And I, I know Paul Shoemaker. He's an amazing philanthropy leader uh, with Social Venture Partners. I highly recommend everyone go out and buy his book. Um And I think it's a great issue and question. And too often, you know, too often funders don't walk the talk, right? They say they want to invest in systems change and then they give a one-year grant and they expect to see like outcomes, you know, six months into the grant to see what the progress is, right? Whereas like Amazon, you know, lost money for however long it lost money before it was profitable, but nobody expected them to have, you know, (laughs) turn a profit in six months, right? And so I think um, it's a problem. Funders don't often don't, um, they don't walk their talk. They don't apply um, what they're expecting of other nonprofits to themselves. And they often don't um, think about like kind of the the reality check of what they're asking for, right? So, um, you know, like if you're a business, you might invest in R&D, 
you know, for research and development for a long period of time. You believe in innovation. So you're constantly generating innovative ideas and testing them. They're not all going to succeed, right? The R&D might show that something didn't work. I mean, thank God researchers and scientists did a whole lot, had a whole lot of medical technological failures in the past few, I don't know, decades, such that now we have a vaccine for COVID. Today's vaccine is built on a whole bunch of failures. And thank God for all of them, um, because we have a vaccine really quickly. And so I think, you know, what nonprofits can do is really help help funders recognize that, recognize the length of time change takes, look at other examples of change. I mean, think about getting people to stop smoking cigarettes. You know, that was a decades long endeavor. And think of all the resources, research, public information campaigns, legislation that went into that um, and the dramatic impact it had. So I think part of it is reframing and helping, you know, this is really a how we all help people understand change as we kind of put things in context or put it in examples that they could understand. If you're talking to a donor who who was an entrepreneur, helping them recognize how you know they invested in their talent, and therefore we need the resources to invest in our talent, or they invested in R and D and innovation, and it didn't always work. We need to do that too. So I think part of it is putting it um, in context that makes sense to people that they can really understand. I mean. If you're a parent, think about raising children. You know, like you put all your effort into it, but you can't quite guarantee the outcome. And so I say that as a parent of instead parent of five. And so, um, so I think part of it is changing the context, but also I think to your point around um, systems change is really helping people see and, as you said, kind of create that vision. And I talk about creating a strategy but recognizing what are the interim points along the way. So helping people see the early wins and sharing that with them. So, or even like what you've learned from the losses, you know, you might have a systems change or policy change strategy and the first effort, you know, the votes don't go your way and the you know legislation didn't pass. Well, okay. That doesn't mean it's a failure. It means like, what did you learn from that experience and how, what do you need to mobilize or do differently for the next round? And so I think, Part of it is communicate clarity in what you're doing, having those benchmarks and engaging your donors along the way to help them see uh, or even literally engage them. Can they go with you to meet the legislator on your lobbying conversation? Right. So they can see what this is really like and what it takes. I'm going to give a specific example here. You mentioned um, social ventures partners, and um, I'm actually on the board of directors of SVP Portland, which is where so many of these conversations have come from in the conversation with Paul Shoemaker. And um, I'll give an example of systems change and what that looks like and how patient you have to be. So our chapter of SVP decided that what we really wanted to get behind was um, racial inequity and social justice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we want to make that the core. So about six or eight years ago, they started like figuring out like what can we do to push that forward and what they found before i joined the board was that it was actually the access to preschool education was one of the most significant barriers to the disparity in in outcomes between um white kids and kids of color kids of immigrants and kids from poor back or kids from poor backgrounds or kids with disabilities preschool education that's what they found Mm-hmm. So that's where they started putting their efforts on fixing, right? And so I joined shortly after that. And a lot of my conversation with the board, which is somewhat short-sighted, but also 
helpful as like, okay, we know in Portland, we have every year 14,000 kids who don't have access to preschool education. So I told them before I joined, I was like, I'm going to be really pissed if in three years from now, I look back at my term and that number is still 14,000, mm-hmm, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. It hasn't gone down. Um, it has gone down. Um, but what we decided to do, and this is really a novel for SVP, um, SVP chapters, and we're sort of talking to the broader organization, is we decided to back actually a policy, um, Preschool for All, here in Portland, um, that actually integrated um, city funding for preschool education um, and alternative learning environments, um, because preschool is also problematic, turns out. Um, but it was that system, the problem, what, what, what's creating these disparate outcomes for our community? Where do we think we can make the biggest change? How do we focus there? Mm-hmm. And now that we're doing this, we know that that number 14,000 is going to go off, you know, go down and down and down so that, you know, in two, three years, I, I asked that question at our last board meeting, like, okay, what's the chart for that number going down? What does that look like? Um, turns out three or four years is when we start to see really big changes in that as the city stands up and, and provides that. So that's an example. You wouldn't necessarily have thought that that's a way to address social justice. But when you do the research and stick with it and have tenacity over time, it can make a big difference, whether you're talking about those 14,000 kids every year or what happens 18 to 20 years later mm-hmm. as they start mm-hmm. applying for jobs, as they start applying for college and things like that. So that's where I hold my hope out on is like, you know what? I know all the effort I'm doing now. I'll never see it, right? So I won't see a different, but I know this community will be different as we start to see these kids matriculate through the education system, get great jobs, and then change their communities because they have the resources. Absolutely. That's a great example. And, you know, it's also an example of, you know, you have to do your research. You need to understand, like, you go from racial injustice is important to now what do we do? You know, like, what exactly? What's the intervention? What do we think we can uh, you know, have the greatest impact with the resources we have. And then also like, how do we, who do we partner with? I mean, I'm sure that effort involved partnering with the County, the city, mm-hmm. the school district, probably public transportation, because that would have been a challenge of these kids can't get to high quality preschool because their parents have to take, you know, six buses or there is no bus or whatever it is. And so there's a lot of systems change. And, but I think also keeping your eyes on that prize of, look, we can make all of these other changes in the world. And, and those are like indicators of progress. But at the end of the day, there better be more high quality preschool options for kids <laughs> and they better be enrolled in them and doing and thriving and doing well and getting ready for kindergarten. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's yeah. why I'm still holding out because in three or four years, if that number is not down, <laughs> I'm going to go, something is not working. We spent the last decade and we're at the same number. So we're not solving the problem. Right. Um, well, that also speaks to, you know, the the guide that I mentioned, um, eight things every philanthropist can do to change the world, even when the world keeps changing, is really about like, yeah, you can have these plans and these visions of what you're trying to do and your strategy to do it. But we have to constantly be checking in and seeing what's working, what's not working, like every two months. I mean, regularly with the assumption, you know, asking, have conditions changed externally in the world, in our community or in our organizations such that we need to pivot or shift or change um, so that you don't wait 10 years to kind of figure out, oh, I guess we should have done something different. I mean, one of my clients, the David and Lucille Packard Foundation, invested in something similar, which was um, the problem of of summer learning loss. 
And we all know that kids, you know, they finish school in June, most of them, and then they have fun summer break and then they go back to school and they've lost a lot of what they've learned and it's a problem. And so they try to tackle this, but they learn from their experience as they were going, they weren't getting the, making the progress they thought they were. So they brought everyone together. They had a whole statewide coalition and recognized they hadn't done a very good job of engaging uh, school district superintendents. And that was kind of this missing leadership piece. And so they decided we need to change gears and add that in to what we're doing. And they did that. And voila, you know, things started changing really quickly. And so, but you have to intentionally check in. I mean, you literally have to put it in your calendars. We're going to talk every month, every two months, once a quarter, whatever it is to say what's working, what's not working, what do we need to change? Because disruption and volatility are the status quo. And we need to assume that these changes are going to need to be made and, and welcome them, right? because it's an opportunity to get closer to our goals. Absolutely. I'm going to tie together two things, because I noticed this before our last thread, is that you use um, investor, funder, and, and philanthropist pretty much interchangeably. And I love that, because for so many of us entrepreneurs out there, we understand investing, we understand funding, right? We can skate around the philanthropy question, right? We might have problems with it, but we know what that looks like, right? We um, get involved in crowdfunding campaigns, whether they're Kickstarter or on Republic, you know, we um, understand that we need to invest in solutions and they might not pan out for a while. Um, so all of that's given. So I love how you use that language independently. And I'm going to steal some of that. Um, just so you know. Um, Excellent. I think where the entrepreneurial sector can get really frustrated is because we have this tendency to be like, oh, problem. I have a solution. I'm going to start working on that solution now, right? As opposed to the coalition um, effort, which when you get involved in philanthropy or real systems change, you don't make it happen without a coalition. Yes. Um, and so um, how do you sort of work with people who have that very strong we we have the money, we have the resources, we see a problem, we think we can tackle it directly um, and, and sort of guide them into more of the coalition mindset? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting question and conundrum. And I think um, there's really an opportunity for learning on both sides. So I think with the kind of excited, I was going to say aggressive, but I'll say excited entrepreneur who wants to, you know, end homelessness tomorrow, I think it's explaining, you know, like helping them understand what's actually happening. Um, and if this problem was so easy to solve, it probably would have been solved already, you know, and and, and understanding what are the causes of homelessness? Like if it's jobs, if it's lack of education, if it starts in preschool, if it's, you know, people having problems like substance abuse or mental health issues with no access to treatment or help then how can you possibly be self-sufficient and successful and, and keep a job down and therefore be able to you know, pay for your own housing? And so I think it's help, it, part of its education and helping people recognize and understand all that's coming into play because, you know, chances are they might not have thought of these things. And just because they were amazing, you know, hedge fund managers or tech entrepreneurs doesn't, you know, mean that they are knowledgeable about, about everything. Right. And, on the flip side, you know, recognizing for, for the kind of traditional nonprofit funder folks that, you know, we often move too slowly and um, and there could be ideas, opportunities, innovations that could 
rapidly catapults our work, our thinking that we're just not even thinking about. We're not aware of. We don't think that way, perhaps. And so just I think both it's really important for both sides, if you will, to be open to learning and benefiting from each other. And so that you're not kind of squashing the entrepreneurial spirit and the innovative spirit, because that could be that could be it. Right. Um, and so, um, uh, I mean, just think about like um, access to like virtual health, uh, health visits. Right. And, you know, some people might say, well, we need to build more hospitals and we need more, you know, bedside manner of the doctors and more in-person care. And like, yeah, that's important. And meanwhile, we have lots of people living in rural parts of the country that have no access. And, you know, the healthcare system in this country is not going to be reformed really anytime soon. In the meantime, we can create amazing technology that can really help us have high quality virtual visits in real time that are super helpful, mental health visits, physical health visits, whatever. And so, you know, I think we all we have to be open to all of it and really, but I think collectively generating that innovative muscle and innovative ideas um, to think outside the box. Yeah, I love that. And one of the questions that I often will ask for nonprofits who are doing systems change work is like, what's the fastest experiment we can do to test a solution that might work? Right. And what's fast and cheap and things like that, because I know there are times, depending upon my mood for the day, where like I can't abide by for the um, committee on meetings for committees. Right. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, no, I, I can't. <laughs> I, I'm not doing it. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, as yes. opposed to like, what can what can we do to move it forward? Even if it's not the systemic change, it might be a glimpse of what might work that then we can take. And so I think there's a definite there. And also I've learned a lot as the as the hard charging entrepreneurs are like maybe slowing down and building the coalition and maybe slowing down and enrolling other people will increase the um, effect the effectiveness of the experiment in the first place right and so it's a, mm -hmm. it's a bit of both and and I'm so glad you mentioned that so I guess if you're on the committee side of things the question is like how can you create a solution faster and test it and if you're on the entrepreneurial side of things it's who do you need to involve in the experiment and in the decision making process to create something that's going to be viable Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. that, yes. For me, that's that's sort of how I balance that. Yeah, I mean, I think and I write about this in the book, Delusional Altruism, that, um, you know, we need to in philanthropy, we need to increase our speed. You know, philanthropy moves at the speed of sloths, really. And, you know, the example that always irks me the most is in strategic planning and these like year long strategic planning processes, during which time. Funders stop making grants because all their time goes into excessive data gathering and analysis. Then they have a plan then they have to wait two months for the board to meet to approve the plan and on it goes. And like a year and a half later, they're now a year and a half behind <laughs> because their plan's out of date. Yep. And it's a problem. And so I also write about, you know, ways to increase your speed. And I do think sometimes you need to slow down to go fast. And so you need to put, you know, and an entrepreneur would know this if you're not just going to like, come up with a tech solution in your own company and not ensure that you have the training in place, the equipment in place, the education, the person who's going to fix the technology, right? So people recognize you have to have all the pieces in place. And I think also, if you kind of keep your eyes on the prize of what you're trying to accomplish, you know, you recognize you're not going to have effective preschool education 
without the school district's involvement. You're not going to have effective preschool education without the you know, transportation department's involvement, parents' involvement. And so, you know, you do need to build time for those relationships and that, um, that those connective tissues to be made. And also, you know, but try to speed up, speed up what you're, you know, as you said, you know, figure out what we can do first, get moving on that, maintain moment, get momentum building so that people are on board and recognize that change can begin to happen quickly. Absolutely. Absolutely. So where we are in the world when this is publishing or when this will published is that, you know, more people have access to vaccines, things will start opening up and we'll see the beginning or middle, depending upon how you count it, of the recovery. So what can or how can social um, investors and funders or prepare for the recovery? Well, I think a couple things. One is to shift your mindset, as I mentioned before, that, you know, the future is always uncertain volatility and disruption are the status quo. There is no new normal. You know, we're not all going to like breathe a sigh of relief and then go back to normal. Right. And that that's okay. And really to shift your mindset from having that be kind of a paralyzing feeling to allowing it to really free you to recognize that you don't have to plan for every contingency because you can't. And instead, you know, really kind of create that plan that you can count on and with the confidence you can change course along the way but allow yourself to have something to focus on to guide your work. So I think that's really important. I also think it's very important for all of us, funders, nonprofit leaders, business owners, entrepreneurs, to reflect back on the past year and learn from it in very practical, tangible ways. Meaning, you know, gather yourself or your team together for an hour or so and brainstorm, you know, what did we try in the past year that worked really well? What did we try last year that didn't work so well that like flopped, right? Um, what of those new practices that worked well, what do we want to maintain going forward? And even like what could spread across the organization? So for funders, maybe they got money out the door faster. Well, what else can you do faster, right? Can you do strategic planning faster? How can we increase speed throughout our whole operation as an example? Um, and also, what did we not do differently? In retrospect, we wish we had done, Right. Uh, and so, and we can now start doing so, but literally brainstorm that and write it down and pick the things that you want to maintain, maybe not 20 of them, but at least your top four assign people <laughs> to be accountable to making that happen and pick a date and time and put it in your calendars when you will reconvene, like in a few weeks and share progress, right? So you really act on, so we don't lose. I mean, my God, if we lost all the progress we made in the past year. It's such a, it's tragic, right? And I'm talking about things big and small, you know, like a lot of funders at the beginning of the pandemic, I think all foundations could be divided into two categories in March of 2020, those that had the ability to make online grant payments and those who didn't. Those who instead only could write, make grants via a paper check that multiple people had to physically sign that was now locked in an office that they were prohibited by law or some landlord from entering. And they were in a state of total panic, right? And so what they probably wish they had done differently was invest in technological improvements, right? So now you can, and you don't have to allow yourself to be held back by poor technology or lack of investment in yourself. And so I really encourage all all of us to really reflect on what worked, what didn't, and what we want to maintain going forward. 
Chris, what I love about that answer, and it's not necessarily the way you said it, but what I saw is like, huh. So we've gone from funding and investing in philanthropy to basically funders needing to have more of a project management perspective of like what their money goes and converting that into a project and seeing it through as opposed to I'm just going to send a check or I'm just going to do something and then let it go and and trust. Right. And so Mm -hmm. given as much as we talk about projects around here, I just wanted to throw a plug and it was like, Oh, I didn't expect it to go that way. And yet here we are. (laughs) Um, And also adopting an abundance mindset and really as opposed to a scarcity mindset, which too often philanthropists, and nonprofit leaders, quite frankly, have, which is, the, you know, recognizing the importance of investing in ourselves, investing in our own learning, our professional development, our talent, the ability to evaluate and assess our impact, the time it takes to build relationships, um, executive coaching, you know, and technology, whatever it might be, as funders, investing in that for themselves so that they can have the greatest impact because they're the strongest funder that they can be. And especially investing in nonprofits so that they can, you know, not just survive these crises, but thrive and innovate during them. That's fantastic. All right, Chris, as the guest on today's show, you get to leave our listeners with an invitation or a challenge, depending upon which one resonates with you. So based upon what we've talked about today, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do in the next week? I would invite you to... Reflect on your strategy. A, do you have one? (laughs) Because you might not have one. And that's okay. B, when's the last time you updated it if you have one, if you call it a strategic plan? And if it's been more than a year or even maybe nine months, I would really encourage you to to refresh that strategy. Because a strategy is really a decision-making framework that guides your thinking. It allows you to align your team toward what's most important and focus on the top priorities and it gives you something to adjust when things change and they will change. And so, I, again, I encourage you, if you want to download that uh, guide, um, just go to 8things.org. It gives you kind of an easy to read sort of blueprint and steps you can take to, to do that. Um, because, you know, we need to make sure that as conditions keep changing all around us, we have clarity on what's most important for us and we have the ability to change as we need to. Chris, this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for joining us today and for the work you're doing out there in the world to make it better. Thank you. And likewise with you, you're doing great work. All right, listeners. So you heard it from Chris. You know, we say around here when reality changes, change your plan. Don't try to make your plan match reality or excuse me. Don't try to make reality fit into your plan. That's a episode or that's a recipe for suffering. The world has changed. So maybe it's time for you to review your strategy and create a new plan. Until next time, stand tall, start finishing, and work better together. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.